Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. All over the world, as populism surges, as creative destruction makes economic change inevitable, the focus on manufacturing and manufacturing jobs is often front and center. Maybe it's the old romantic notion of big shoulders, the factories and machines spinning noisily, providing well-paying jobs. But the fact is that simply far more jobs, almost 30 million in the U.S. alone, exist in the retail sector. And those jobs are in far greater jeopardy than anything in manufacturing. We see it all around us on boarded up main streets and empty malls. It's easy and somewhat lazy to blame it all on Amazon and the internet. The causes go far deeper. Our entire relationship to shopping, to acquisition of things, to brands is changing. And of course, millennials are leading the way. As both millennials and aging empty nest baby boomers move to cities, there simply isn't so much space to store all the stuff we used to buy. Why else has Mary Kondo become an international icon? So if retail is to survive, a lot has to change. And to help us understand this, I am joined by our guest, Mark Pilkington. Mark Pilkington is an experienced retail chief executive and strategy consultant. He founded Splendor.com, the world's first direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand, and he currently advises brands and retailers on how to succeed in the rapidly changing world of business. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Pilkington here to talk about his new book, Retail Therapy, Why the Retail Industry is Broken and What Can Be Done to Fix It. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really pleased to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. As we look at the retail industry, it's interesting to see sort of the historical cycles that have been part of the industry. I mean, we started out, you know, with small, independent little retailers that gave way to department stores, that created a kind of backlash that gave way to little mom and pops once again, that then created these big chains like Walmart, Target, etc. And then that gave way to what we see now in terms of online shopping and the internet. And one wonders, what's next? How do we look at the historical record and kind of use that as a way to understand what's happening today? Well, one of the things you've uh, mentioned is the changes in the retail industry. And in a sense, now what is happening um, with the move online is an extension of that process because uh, retail went from being, as you say, mom and pop stores to being large chains and out of, out of town uh, discounters, big box. But the thing is that on the Internet, the box is much bigger. I mean, if you go to one of the biggest big box electronics retailers, <clears throat> you'll see maybe 70 or 80 um, uh, television, uh, types of television uh, on the floor. But if you go on Amazon, you know, you've got, I think, 700,000 uh, options of TV. So um, you could look at the, the move online as being an extension of the, of the big box. It's just that the box now exists um, electronically rather than in a physical space. But one of the things that's happened is that there's been an element, I guess, of creative destruction that has really changed who the players are. Each, each group that's been displaced in this history has never really kept pace and gotten ahead of where the industry was going. No, that's right. I mean, if you look 20 years ago when um, Amazon was really only just a gleam in the eye, um, you know, the big, the big retailers, the big department store groups controlled uh, the, the U.S. retail market. 
Um, and I think that they consistently underestimated the, the power of the internet and thus didn't invest sufficiently in developing their own internet businesses. So you now have a situation where one company, which is Amazon.com, controls nearly 50% of the American e-commerce market and the top seven or eight department stores and, and major retailers between them only have about six or seven percent of the e-commerce channel. It's interesting to note that, that if you look at this, that any of those big retail players, you know, Macy's or, or Walmart or Target, could have been Amazon. They, were a, they had this strategic advantage, but essentially gave it up. Well, I think that if you look at retail's relationship with e-commerce, it went through a number of phases. I think, it, I mean, I was around, I started Splendor in 1999. And at that time, we all thought that e-commerce was going to you know, immediately start destroying retail. And the retailers thought it, it, it too. I mean, the people who invested in my business was the large leading UK retailer, Marks and Spencers, and that they put money into my business because they realized that they needed to get an e-commerce strategy. Then you went through the, the, the bust of the e-commerce sector in 2000, 2001. And um, the retailers, I think, then looked at it and said, well, that wasn't that bad. You know, maybe it was overstated. And in any case, you know, we'll build our own in internet businesses, but it's just going to be another channel to market. Um, and they treat all these channels in their mind as being equal without really understanding that actually in many ways the channels are not equal. One of the things you point out is that public policy has had an impact on this as well. Talk about that. Public policy has uh, tended to uh, kick the retailers just as a, at the worst moment, just as they're commercially facing these, these terrible threats. Um, I mean, I think in, in the U.S. there are two major areas where it's been, uh, it's been problematic. The first is the unequal tax treatment of Internet companies versus physical retailers. Governments tend to like retail because it's fixed and you can tax it easily. You can see it. It's on the, it's on the street, if you know what I mean. But the, the, um, until recently, there was a recent uh, Supreme Court ruling, um, but until recently, um, uh, Internet companies did not pay uh, state or local taxes on sales from out of state, um, whereas, of course, the physical retailers, um, unless, they, sorry, unless they had a physical presence in the state, whereas the physical retailers had to pay, and that was estimated, I think, to have been a disadvantage or a cost um, uh, to retail versus uh, the Internet players of something like $20 billion, um, over the course of the last 20 years. Now, the Supreme Court's just... Um, ruled in favour in one state uh, of um, the local government being able to tax internet out of state suppliers and that now has opened the door for the other states to apply but it's going to take time for, for, for them to pass it through. The second area where retail's really got hurt and is getting hurt is with, is with the tariffs um, and you know it's, it's really um, it's an example of what I call unjoined up government because you know, the, the, the government wants the economy to be, keep on going. Uh, it wants the Fed to keep interest rates low. And yet what it's doing is very, very inflationary because these tariffs are forcing, they're squeezing the retailers' margins and forcing them to put prices up. And if anything is going to cause the Fed to, um, to, to raise interest rates, it's going to be a bout of inflation, which is what's likely to happen if the tariff policy is continued. 
Talk a little bit about the whole model of retailing and how that has changed. I mean, it's easy, as you point out in retail therapy, it's easy just to blame e-commerce, but it's more complex than that. Yes, I mean, there are many factors. Um, E-commerce is only really a subset of the technological revolution, which I believe is the biggest change to retailing and brands since the Industrial Revolution. Um, The Industrial Revolution massively lowered the cost of production itself, but it left uh, or actually created additional costs in order to distribute the product to the factories through both brands and retailers. What the technological revolution is doing is it's removing the reasons why you needed to have brands and retailers in the first place, and thus it's an equivalent revolution in the distribution of goods. Um, basically, what you, what, what you have, used to have or what you had was factory-supplied brands which stamped their name on it, thus creating the trust necessary for the consumer to buy it. They then sold it to the retailer who provided the physical space in which it could be distributed or fulfilled to the consumer. The consumer also contributed by showing up and taking it away, which was an inconvenience for the consumer, but they did it. That's the way that the supply chain operated. But at each stage, it added cost into the process. And in fact, goods were sold in the stores for about 10 times, 8 to 10 times what they cost to produce. These days, you don't need the trust factor so much because you can get trust from user reviews online. I mean, if you see a five-star review on Amazon, you know this product has been, is good. You don't necessarily have to know the brand name. And therefore, it's cutting out the need for the brands with their big sales forces and advertising budgets. And then you don't need the stores to do the, the, the product distribution bit because um, it can be done online much more efficiently from a centralized warehousing uh, system. So this is revolutionizing the supply chain as a whole um, and it's causing a massive drop in costs and therefore it's gradually causing a massive squeeze on prices, um, which is what is really distressing the retailers. Of course, what we're also seeing is more direct-to-consumer sales, where the manufacturer is able to sell directly to the consumer. Well, this is you've hit the the nail on the head, because a lot of people talk about Amazon. But in a way, Amazon is only part of the story, because Amazon is really still a department store, but it's online. They still mainly sell brands. But the direct-to-consumer companies now... Either the factories themselves are selling on things like Alibaba directly out of China to people, and I think that will grow, or you've got these very smart um, premium direct-to-consumer companies like Warby Park or Everlane or Bonobos um, or Casper, which are taking a very high-spec product from the factories and, and distributing it to people at a dramatically lower cost than the person would have to pay for that kind of product if they were to buy a brand in a store. And that's an area that we're missing in, in many ways when we talk about the impact, the economic impact of this change in retailing, is that not only are stores closing and people that work in retail in the stores, not uh, are they losing jobs, but also the whole supply chain that used to exist to support that is going away. Again, you've hit the nail on the head, and I wish everyone had your level of understanding because I I have a lot of frustrating conversations with retailers and brands about this. But the point is the whole supply chain is going, potentially. Not the factories. The factories will always have a role because someone has to create the product, and the consumer will always be needed in order to consume it. But between A and B, you know, you don't need all this infrastructure. So whether you're talking about the large major retailers or whether you're talking about the, the, the major, you know, packaged goods 
consumer packaged goods companies, which have been a stalwart of you know the stock market for the last 50 years or something, they are under they are under a desperate threat. Um, and both retailers and brands are desperately looking for a, for a way out of this this squeeze, if you like. The other part of it is. Is there a way out, given that we have reached, arguably, as, as you talk about in the book, kind of peak consumption, that consumption is going down? Yes, I mean, that's the other side of the equation. I've talked a lot this afternoon, um, sorry, your morning, probably my <laughs> afternoon, um, about, the, uh, about the supply side, but of course the demand side as well. And, and there, on the demand side, you've got a couple of major changes. The first is that young people who, when you look at it, the people who actually support retail or have supported retail historically, are very, very squeezed on their wealth. I mean, in America, I think 84% of all the wealth is owned by people over 45. Um, and they have different concerns and they have different spending patterns, but they're not going to be rushing into stores to buy lots of fashion and beauty and, and, and they're not setting up homes because they already have homes. The younger consumer that you normally would rely on in order to do all those things has been tremendously squeezed. They're squeezed on space, they're squeezed on income, um, they've got heavy debts. And therefore, this, this massive inequality in society, which is true also in Europe, uh, and other parts of the world it is producing a is going to produce and is producing a secular drop in consumption unless governments can find a way to redistribute some of that wealth to younger people um, it's going to cause a, a big demand side problem as well but as you point out and as I mentioned in the introduction even in the cases where there is more wealth among young people and perhaps the tech industry here in in, in Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area is an example because more and more young people are moving to cities or living in cities, there are space limitations. Well, again, you, you point to a very good thing. There are space limitations. There's also a change in the zeitgeist among, among younger people. Uh, and uh, in many ways, it reminds me of when I was young in, in, the, in, the, in the 70s, in the early 70s, where um, consumption, I don't want to say cons conspicuous consumption, is, is dropping out of fashion. Um, it, it is, people are, are wanting more of a sense of authenticity. They want to make sure that the things that they consume are done ethically, are produced ethically, and not damaging the environment. And they're beginning to, there's a, a, a sense that they're tiring with all of the consumption, all of the throwaway elements, for example, of fast fashion, where, you know, you, the stuff comes in every two weeks and you've got to buy it and mark it down and get it out so the new stuff can come in and then people buy it, wear it twice and then throw it away. It, it just, I think there's a sense of fatigue with all of that. And of course the debt that has gone along with it, the debt and the personal problems that all that consumption has produced in society, which we saw in the Great Recession. Uh, pe people are starting to say, do we need all this stuff? Um, and we've got things like the lean closet movement, um, which, you know, saying, have a, own a few good pieces and people are wanting to repair pieces rather than necessarily throw them away and replace them. It's a, it, the zeitgeist is changing and that, unfortunately, spells very bad news for, you know, all of the consumer-facing industries and their supply chain. Mm -hmm. When we look at the totality of what we've been talking about, the fact that, that the nature of retail has been changing because of the online aspect, consumer demands have been changing, direct-to-consumer sales, the, the broader zeitgeist you're talking about, in many ways it's a it perfect anti-retailing storm. Is there, in your view, a way out of this? Well, I think that retailers have got to look at the direct-to-consumer model 
Um, and they've got to, in their minds, they've got to say to themselves, how do I get to that place? Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that stores have no role, um, because even the direct-to-consumer companies now are starting to open stores, but they're not stores in the classical sense. They're not the large box um, stock warehouses, I call them glorified warehouses that existed in the past. They're very lean stores that really focus just on marketing. And most of the direct-to-consumer companies are just using them for marketing and doing the fulfillment through their, their direct-to-home operation. Um, and um, so the store footprints are much smaller. Um, and, the, and the role of the staff is very different because when you are in a big box um, glorified warehouse type retailer, your staff spend over 50% of their time looking after and processing the stock and therefore have very little time to deal with customers. And I'm sure we've all experienced that in, in, in stores. Um, what people like Bonobos and others are doing with their with their um, showrooms as they call them is that the staff in those showrooms are very have a very different role they're not there to manage stock they're there to serve customers and customers make appointments and sit down they're given a beer or a coffee they get put on a comfortable sofa and they sit and have a long chat about what they like and don't like they try different things on and uh, but all the fulfillment is, is is going to the home now that role of a store is still valid because i don't think that the internet at the moment is capable of uh delivering what you know a warm one-to-one intelligent human being is capable of doing it's not that you know we still we still desire those kind of social experiences in a very nice environment um so that element of retailing is still going to be valid but the actual fulfillment bit of it is is not going to be valid so what i'm trying to encourage in my book is for retailers to say okay how do we in order to do that, the retailers have to wean the customers off the idea that they're going to pick up the goods in the store. Um, they've got to basically use the store space for selling, but the fulfillment to go directly. Now, it's actually fairly easy for retailers to do that because they've got the customer there anyway. And therefore, moving, getting the customer to sign up on their website and take delivery of the goods is actually relatively simple compared with, say, a, a new startup who has to go out and recruit an entirely new customer base. But the, the message I'm giving is if you don't get, if you're a retailer, and you don't get your customers onto your website so that they can take delivery through this more efficient supply chain from you, someone else is going to come and take that customer and they're going to undercut you on price or whatever and they're going to do the same thing. So for the retailers, to me, they either, you know, you, if you can't beat them, you have to join them. And then what you have to do is to shrink your stores over time, depending on your lease dates and things like that. And as you migrate your customer fulfillment online, you can take a lot of the stock out of the store and shrink the store, which shrinks the cost base of the store and only keeps the bit that really adds value, which is what we call the front of house of the mm -hmm. store, um, and basically gets rid of the rest of it. Now, that, amongst other things, will align the base of the retailer with the direct-to-consumer brands. And that gives them, it gives them an, uh, a chance to compete in the future. Otherwise, my belief is, honestly, they're going to get wiped out. What that doesn't take into account, though, in the long run, is something like virtual reality, which in five to ten years could eliminate even that in-store experience. Well, you are right to point to virtual reality and artificial intelligence as being a major new technological trends, which is definitely going to improve 
and favour the online offer because it's going to make it more and more real. And in the future, and I have chapters on this in the book, it's going to be possible to feel the product and to, to smell or taste the product electronically. Um, so th those kind of things are going to improve for the online players. However, I actually don't think that what humans want in the, in, the, in the long run is to all be sitting at home on their mobile phones and never going out and ordering everything on their mobile phones. I think, I think that they are still going to enjoy the social experience of going into a great environment with like-minded people who are passionate about this product and experiencing uh, this product in a very live, nice way. But you'll have to have very good start. You're going to need a very nice environment and very, very good staff to, to still have that human contact, if you like. A good staff, but certainly a smaller staff, a lot less people than the current retail infrastructure requires. Well, that's probably true. And, and you know, the other thing that artificial intelligence is going to do is it's going to remove a lot of the basic functions in the store in the sense of a checkout. Already you can see checkout is disappearing as a, as a labor um, function. Um, and, and I'm afraid that's going to be necessary because... You know, it's it's uh, um, those sort of things ca uh, is going to be done electronically. Um, but the higher value added task of consulting and advising is the area that is, if you like, best protected from artificial intelligence. And to my mind, it's not an ideal route in the sense that you're quite right. It's probably not going to employ the, the numbers of people that it does at the moment. But at least, you know, there's an opportunity for it to exist. And we don't have to go through this process where, which was what we're seeing at the moment, which is that huge retail groups with their vast staffs are just going under completely and throwing everybody out all in one go. I mean, you know, if Sears goes, which it probably will, you know, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of people thrown onto the, onto the unemployment list all at the same time. Now, if the retail is able to evolve and do the sorts of things we're talking about, they at least preserve some of the structure and some of the employment um, and, um, you know, we don't have this vast loss, loss of employment all at the same time, if you like. Talk a little bit about marketing and brands and how you see their role in this new landscape. That's a very excellent point. I must say, you, you, you're, you're very astute. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, your, your questions are very searching and very intelligent. Look, the way in, I worked in brands for many, many years, and the way we used to do it was that we'd segment the market, we'd pick a segment that we, that we fancied trying to, to uh, address, and we would draw up a profile of that group of people, which was like a composite of all those people. We would design what we thought was the ideal lifestyle for them, and that's what we used to market to people. And it was always around being younger, being more attractive, looking wealthier, looking classier. It was all about image. Um, and, you know, often the products we sold were very basic commodity products, but we dressed them up in this very uh, fancy, tricked-up kind of image to make them feel that they were participating in some kind of ultimate lifestyle. Now, what's happening now is that the power has shifted to the consumer because in the old days, we controlled a lot of the information that went to consumers. I mean, our marketing departments, our advertising agencies and our PR agencies working through a relatively small number of media, gave the consumer most of the information they got about the product. If they didn't like the product, they couldn't really complain to many people. And if they wanted to buy alternatives, they really only had two or three shops in their area to choose from. This has changed completely. Now the consumer has massive choice. They have the choice of the whole world via the internet. They also have massive information which they used not to have. 
Um, they can get information from social media. They can get information from product reviews and price comparison sites. The information is all out there. And if your brand is all image and no substance, it's going to be like what we call the emperor's new clothes. It's going to, you know, people are going to see through it immediately. And you know, we've all seen these campaigns that go viral where a brand gets attacked because it's done something that's offended people. And it can really affect the life of the brand. So the power is passed to the consumer. And this generation of young people who are growing up now, they've grown up with massive innovation. They've grown up with, with, you know, with Amazon, with the iPhone, with Uber, with Airbnb, with, with, with all these massive innovations, with WhatsApp, with Facebook. Massive, massive, real step changes in the way that... Uh, that things are delivered. And the, the old method where you had a basic sort of product, you didn't innovate very much, and then you, you relied on your image is just dead, basically, <laughs> because they're going to know if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a bog standard product, they're going to know that it's that. It's that. And therefore, the only thing that, that brands and marketeers and, and retailers can do now is they, you know, and it has to come from the top, they have to innovate and they have to create genuine um, breakthroughs and things that make life genuinely better for people and for society and for the environment. And they have to, um, they really have to focus on, if you like, the truth <laughs> and not the image. They have to get that message over to people and they have to draw together a, a bunch of enthusiasts around the brand who, who love this product and love this area. And they can't treat them the way we treated them in the old days, where we used to, like, fling the, the image at them. We used to market at people. Now people want to participate in the life of the brands. And a lot of these young direct-to-consumer companies, they have a much more interactive relationship with their customers. A lot of their marketing imagery is actually customer-generated. I mean, there's a great – probably one of the biggest examples of this is, is in a specific sector – is what's going on now between a company called Airy. Uh, have you come across Airy? It's, a, it's an underwear brand. Mm -hmm. No, I haven't. And, okay, Airy, it's a new underwear brand. It's part of the American, uh, American Eagle Group. But it's, it's up against Victoria's Secrets. Now, we all know the Victoria's Secrets image, you know, the angels, the big fashion show, the very fancy image, the very fancy stores. And Airy's taking a completely different route. And what Airy is basically saying is, look, our customers are all shapes and sizes, you know, and they're not angels. <laughs> they're not perfect supermodels. They're real women, and they love our stuff, and their product is more relaxed, it's more of a sports type of look and fit. And their main marketing campaign is just all their customers wearing it. And you've got all these uh, people wearing the product, all shapes, sizes, looks, etc., but happy, and happy with the product. And that is posing an existential threat now to Victoria's Secrets because the zeitgeist has changed and, 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 and the young consumers, they don't want this perfect imposed image. They want something more genuine. And that's an example of how the, really the marketing is being done by the customers and they interact with their customers in a much more equal way. I mean, the customers send in product ideas uh, and, they, and they, they vote on it and people and they produce the product for them. It's more like a community. They curate the community rather than being the bosses. They're not the boss of the community. They're just the people who put it together for a bunch of people who are passionate about this particular product. And that's the way in which the direct-to-consumer companies are developing. Um, and, of course, they're led by younger people, so it's very much, you know, they, they kind of understand each other. And I think the big classic brands, which are run by older people generally, are, are really struggling to come to grips with that 
sensing which brands have changed. One of the things that's abundantly clear, and it kind of brings us back to to where we started with all of this, is that it seems to be maybe more so in the retail industry than, than other industries. I'm not sure. But that the existing brands, the existing companies, the existing retailers can't seem to change. That it always has to be somebody else that comes along to do this. That the transition seems very difficult and culture seems so deeply ingrained in traditional retailers that they can't seem to make the leap. Well, you're absolutely right. And culture is incredibly important. You see, uh, you know, in the days of classic retailing, everything was driven by scale. Decision-making was very, very centralized. There was very little data. You know, you ran the marketing campaigns. People came into the stores, bought the stuff, went away. You really didn't know very much about them. And that meant that a lot of things were not measurable. I mean, you could measure sales per square foot, but you couldn't measure a lot of things about your customers. You didn't know if they were new or they're existing or loyal or not loyal. And, and so as a result of the lack of information and measurability, the culture was very risk-averse and very top-down. And the senior people with all the experience had to make the big calls, otherwise it was too risky. And it was a very rigid type of uh, centralized decision-making structure. Now, the tech people have come along, and they're basically technologists. They've got the Silicon Valley um, culture. And everything within the internet and e-commerce businesses is measurable because it's all on systems and the data is analyzable. And of course, they've got these very clever data analytics people who can predict, you know, they can measure and understand and predict consumer behavior at a far higher level. And what the side product of the measurability of everything has met, it has been that the top management of these companies has been able to let the young technologists, because that's what they are, uh, experiment with new initiatives or new promotions or new calls to action or new methods on a sort of what they call an A-B testing basis. In other words, they test it with a small part of the database and see if it works. They, they may test three or four solutions and then they'll come with the data and say, we've done this and, and, and this solution is the best solution. They then roll it out across the whole thing. And that has enabled them to decentralize the power within these organizations. And they've got these young technologists innovating at a very fast pace, being supported by by the top people and the, and the investors, um, and, and it's a much more democratic, uh, collegiate type of structure. And with the strong technology bias, they are running rings around the big retailers who still rely on their, on their central um, information technology departments, where, you know, they'd say, well, we need this new initiative, and they give it to the IT department, and it's all backed up because there are 12 other, there are 12 other projects that are before it, and it, it moves at a very slow pace, and that's why. They've not been able to keep up in any way at all. Mark Pilkington, his book is Retail Therapy, Why the Retail Industry is Broken and What Can Be Done to Fix It. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's been, it's been brilliant, and you, you really, you really, uh, you're very impressive with your questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. 